Hello and welcome to The Entrepreneurs on Monocle Radio, the show all about inspiring people, innovative companies and fresh ideas in global business. Today's programme is all about tailoring. We meet a trailblazer on a mission to alter the bespoke service experience for women. It's that switch in thinking and switch in wearing something that gives you that feeling of that unapologetic confidence. And later we keep the thread running when we meet the founder of a garment maker based in the Scottish Highlands. Scottishness is massively important because the heritage is Scottish, but the tailoring and some of the expertise of that is very English. So, you know, it it is a hybrid. This is The Entrepreneurs with me, Tom Edwards. You're listening to The Entrepreneurs. Daisy Natchbull's the founder and CEO of The Deck London, a contemporary made-to-measure tailoring brand she started in 2019. Daisy's journey in the deeply traditional world of bespoke tailoring started while working at one of the most prestigious brands on Savile Row, Huntsman. It was there she realised there was a definitive gap in the sartorial market for women. In 2022, she set up shop on Savile Row, making The Deck the first women's-only tailoring house to have a storefront in the street's 200-year history. Daisy stopped by Midori House to chat about her vision for the brand and her new ready-to-wear line. She began by explaining exactly why she's so passionate about the power of made-to-measure tailoring for women. We're the people whose bodies change day by day, week by week, month by month, and we've got boobs and bums and all these things that make finding clothes much more complicated. And and, and I just couldn't believe that there wasn't a shop front that existed for women where they could go and have that same experience on Savile Row. And There's something, as a woman, we all have our own insecurities and we have a very intense emotional relationship with clothing, maybe more so than a man does. And and it's, you know, the the whole sizing, everything around it is wrapped up in so much complexity. And that's what I love about what we do is kind of each woman is celebrating as an individual and celebrating the things they love and the things they don't love about their body. And to have the little bits about you that you don't like have something so perfectly formed around the body so instead of putting my body into clothes I'm having the clothes fit to me and it's that switch in thinking and switch in wearing something that gives you that feeling of that unapologetic confidence that I always talk about or that you want to sit up taller and stand up taller and you feel just elegant and sexy and empowered and it's funny because a suit is one of the most covered things you can kind of wear as you know for what's offered for women but there's something about it that's just so sexy but also so understated and so elegant and timeless and it just really I you know when I walk around in a three-piece suit the amount of women even now that stop me in the street and say god I just want to say you look amazing and it's there's something about it it projects this feeling of confidence even though you might not be feeling that on the inside and I think it was Chanel or someone that said you know dress for who you want to be not who you are and and there's something in that where when I get up and I wear my three-piece suit and I feel it's like a modern armor it's this kind of protection that hides my insecurities but projects a different image to the outside. Are we talking then about business attire because you talk about that feeling of confidence and power and we imagine those emotions in a business setting where feeling confident and empowered is particularly liberating are we talking about clothes for business well you said sometimes i'll get up you know who is the client and what are they what are they wearing your suits for so i get asked this a lot because the natural feeling is that okay you must do a lot of business women and of course there's a great portion of my clients wear for the office but a very big portion of my clients are wearing 
for every occasion. Mm. And that's what we really try and kind of infuse in that ethos of the deck. It's not just for one occasion. I mean, someone might come and say, my daughter's getting married and I don't want to look you know, I don't want to wear that classic dress coat or I don't want to feel like mutton dressed as lamb and I just want to feel comfortable and sexy and all the things I described. Or it's my 60th or, you know, whatever those occasions may be, that's wonderful. But we try and have it for picking your, you know, the same suit you'd wear to pick up your kids from school, go for a lunch with friends, go to a black tie dinner in the evening, go for a walk in the country on a Sunday, go to the pub with mates. That same suit, I mean, we also do dresses and skirts, it's not all suits, but that same outfit is going to give you a number of different ways. And for me, it's, you know, you've got those office occasions, but also I get people writing to me saying, I saw my ex-husband and I was dreading it, but I put my suit on and I looked amazing. Or, you know, I asked for that pay rise and I got it. Or I had to go to a funeral and it was really difficult, but I felt good. And and there's all these lovely stories that come out of it. And and our clients are wearing them for a number of different things. And that's the beauty of what we do. It's it's kind of that thing that you can jump out of bed and knowing you've got something that just fits like a glove and looks good and most importantly is comfortable is the biggest stress reliever and can take you day to night and you can match it with trainers and a t-shirt or a silk shirt and heels and well, I was going to ask you, know, you about that because some people say oh you know are you a tailoring purist and if someone accents it with a pair of sneakers or a formal shoe or a flat shoe because that does that might change some of the dynamics of yeah. how the suit's hanging yeah do, does that bother you or do you just love no. that it is demonstrative of its flexibility. I think it's about how you want to wear it. And I think a lot of these rules are very constrictive and very prescriptive. And people feel scared of messing it up. You know, they say, traditionally, one doesn't do up the bottom bottom of a waistcoat or on a double-breasted jacket. Now, that, I believe, comes from the fact that our previous king was too fat to do it up. This is so what it was decreed I'm going to say. That That's everyone... Yeah. But, you know, and so people get quite hectic and quite worked up thinking, am I wearing it right? Or can I put a peak lapel on a casual suit? Because traditionally it's only on a tuxedo and it should be a notch lapel. And and we always say, just do what you want. Enjoy it and wear it as yours. Own it as yours. A lot of it as well is removing that fear of, I have to be very thin. I have to be very young. I have to be very cool. I have to get all the, the you know, how it should be worn right. And we really try and just say, let that all go and, and do as you wish. Go go with the flow. Go with the flow. Talk to me a little bit about some of the mechanics, because I'm sure our listeners will be thinking, okay, what what actually goes into this? What? How long does the process take? Mm-hmm. How many fittings are there? I'm fascinated by what actually the, the nuts and bolts of it are. The nuts right. and bolts. Yeah, so it takes 10 to 12 weeks with us. And a client comes in and the first thing we'll do is understand them. That's key. And for us, it's as much as we deliver a beautiful quality product that will last for life it's about the experience and the customer service because my gosh do we all know how bad it can be sometimes a retail assistants who tell you sorry we don't stock your size or looks like they don't care remotely about the fact you're giving over your hard-earned income and so for us it's okay we really want to understand our client what do they sweat a lot do they travel a lot what colors do they hate what do they have in their wardrobe they love and most importantly what do they have in their wardrobe they hate we all have something every time you reach for it and then for some reason you put it back and it happens over and over again. Why is that? And if we can understand all of that, we can build something that you will wear forever and and treasure and cherish. So we go through all that process and then it comes to understanding styles. Do you want double-breasted, single-breasted? Do you want a flare? Do you want a wide leg? And what cloth lining, buttons, monogramming, all of that, unlimited. We have 7,000 cloths we work with. You go through that whole process and then you'll be... So it's, it depends on the person, how many fittings needed, depending on what's been asked and body shape. And so it will be around two to three fittings. And then 12 weeks later is the finished piece. And once we have your pattern, it's then much easier to reorder. 
The wonderful thing about what we do is firstly, it's over a, a span of time. So we're able to adjust accordingly, but also all of our suits come with enough inlays. We put super generous inlays in the side so that if you do put on weight, it's okay. We'll let it out. You know, it doesn't become that stressor or that shame thing where it's, oh, I can't, you know, I'm not going to wear my suit because I don't fit into it anymore. It's like, bring it in, we'll let it out. And then if you want to bring it back in, we will. And it, we have that very highly personalized relationship having spent minimum of two hours with each client. That's the part I love. You really get to know these women. And we've got some pretty amazing women, you know, doing... Well, tell me, what really shines things. through is that incredible personal commitment. As you said, that is the nature of the product, but it's the nature of the relationship that you have. That is very much contingent on spending time, getting to know. So, you know, Ripple dissolved back, setting up shop in 2020. Everyone knows what was occurring. How did you navigate that? Because this is not something that can easily jump into the digital realm. I guess there's <laughs> yeah. some elements you can do, but from supply chains of fabrics to critically yeah. getting that kind of hands-on relationship, how how did you navigate it? Because navigate it, you certainly did and successfully, <laughs> but what was the secret? So we actually la we launched nine months before the pandemic in May 2019, and it was amazing. We launched with a bang. We had a great party, and then the orders started coming in. And that was all amazing and we were on top of the world and we moved from a basement in the King's Road to taking a tiny little shop front on Lower Sloan Street and that was six months in and we had lots of celebrities wearing our stuff and more clients and it all seemed to be working. And then the dreaded day came when we sat in front of our TVs and watched Boris Johnson say, you know, we're going into a lockdown. God knows we didn't know what was happening then. And then this long period of closure where we saw some pretty amazing businesses that we've grown up with disappearing and closing and I'm there with a business that's nine months old thinking what am I going to do I mean thank goodness we were so young when it happened because I was able almost to just stop operations completely and with the furlough scheme and the various things going on we took advantage of that the bounce back loan but it was really scary and then mixed in with that was Brexit again something I couldn't as a young first-time founder turn to anyone and say what did you do in your last pandemic what did you do the last time Britain left the European Union it's just there was no answers and around Brexit that the shipping companies everyone didn't know the supplies no one knew what was going on and then we, there was so much uncertainty around the pandemic when are we going to open we were closed in total for a period of 13 months and it was awful it was just it didn't know when it was ever was it going to survive were we ever going to reopen and, and like you said this isn't a product you know I had looking at other brands that were just booming on homeware and leisure wear and they had all their online sales and shops and I just thought this is such a disaster there's nothing we can do we tried some virtual consultations and they were successful but we wanted to be a bit careful it was new territory we were a new brand we wanted to make sure that we were retaining that quality and so really what I did instead was look very obliquely at the business and I try and turn it into a positive and think it was a very unique time where I'd traded for nine months. I'd understood enough about my business, what was going right, what was going wrong, what people loved, what they didn't. And it was this very unique period where I was able to completely stop and say, okay, this is a case study. This is what I've done for nine months. This is how it's gone. And this is where I want to be. I don't know how long that I'm not going to be able to operate, but I want to look, do some blue sky thinking, look completely obliquely at my business and pivot and turn and change and better myself for when this does finish and we can come out stronger. And that's exactly what we did. And just refining and bettering and working on the things I could do, tweaking my branding, you know, looking at the marketing, building out and planning strategies, business plans, all of this kind of stuff. And then when we launched, it was just go, go, go. And we just, the, the sales just went berserk. I think the pandemic bred this more conscious consumer. 
as much as there was pain in the pandemic and sadness and a lot of death, we saw the world breathe. We saw time stop slightly and we took more care of the planet. And we really started to see people caring more about their purchases and what it was doing to the planet. And for us, it was just, hey, we're a female-founded business working with natural fibers and artisans and craftsmen and want you to wear this for the rest of your life and wear it in a multitude of ways and it's durable and versatile and, and it costs the same as probably one of the dresses that you used to buy, you know, on these platforms, on these big shopping platforms. And it just, people just started and shifting where they spent their money and thought, this is a really fun idea. But not only that, it's great, it's comfy and it's good for the planet. Let's move this way. And for us, we just have doubled every year. And it's just been a really wonderful thing that people have just come in droves to us. No, amazing. And it is funny, as you said, there was that shift, a change in intentionality about the purchases and the things that you're going to apply your hard one money towards and i would say you know sustainability begins with running a sustainable business yeah. in terms of keeping it the lights yeah. on first and foremost resilience before, the before resilience anything else factor. tell me about on a purely sort of emotional level you go back to i don't know maybe one of the very earliest clients and you said this moment where i don't know they cry or they're just delighted you can see it they're happy you're happy that must be so intense at the start of the journey does that as you become more successful and you're doing things on a certain scale is it the same? I mean, can you be as happy now when a perfect job, a great fit, a great client, maybe there were some difficulties about marrying up your vision and their vision? When it all comes together, is it still? can it still be as thrilling? Yeah, it's maybe a bit corny, but yeah, I think as you grow, you meet more amazing people and more amazing clients and there's more instances of joy. And I think there just is nothing better than seeing a woman who, and, and my favorite ones are women who've never been able to find a pair of trousers, for instance, in their life. And you've got that really nervous moment where they're, they're about to try it on and you think, oh God, you know, and there's only so much we can do because you can measure and, and check that everything comes to it and you can put it on a mannequin, but you can't put it on the same body that might have a high right hip or a sloping shoulder or a lean forward stance. You know, you has to be finally on the client to see. And you just think, oh, you know, and what we battle, the hardest thing I always think about what we do is there's the image that the client has of themselves. And no matter how much you do, you cannot change that. They will always think they look fat in this. They look short in this. They look weird in this or gangly in this, whatever kind of thing that they feel about themselves. But no women truly see themselves for who they are when they look in the mirror and it is a very daunting experience for a lot of women so you know you hope and pray that these beautiful clothes and them looking amazing is what they see and then it's those moments where you see tears in their eyes or you see them stand taller and look at themselves and kind of check themselves out a bit or that little grin in the mirror and you think you know those moments you you can't it just every time it brings happiness because everyone's different and every reaction is different and that's the beautiful, honestly, the beautiful part about what we do. And, and it gets better and better. Bringing things right up to speed, Desi, uh, the clock is against us. But I wanted to ask you just quickly about ready to wear. Inevitable. I don't know. Was that always in the kind of back of mind or front of mind? There is a line out now. Is that right? Yes, or, exactly. But newish on the scene. How should we look at that? Is that the the product and the consequence of your growth as a craftsperson in this area so far? Or was that always in your mind? What's... Yeah, it, it's very, it's been very thought through and thought about a lot it was never I guess when we first launched it wasn't at the forefront of my mind but what's come out of this is a couple of things which is one we have great demand across the world that we can't meet which is such a lovely thing and how do we meet those people but also the line's called Natural, which is my surname and it's a, a very personalized collection where I've worked with this incredible designer and and it's about the things I love and the things that I believe with my taste and vision if, if 
people like that, which they seem to have done all these years, would buy into. And it was carefully listening to clients and them saying, where do I get the perfect silk shirt? Where do I get the perfect bodysuit to wear? I need a trench coat that doesn't do this. I want a jumpsuit that isn't pulling at the crotch. And it was just years of all of this and thinking, we want the deck to become the wardrobe for the modern woman. And then, of course, we'll always have that side of things where things can be perfectly made to you. But what about these little tidbits and extras that complement what we do or is for the woman that just doesn't want to wait? The amount of people we get coming through from New Zealand or Australia and they think, what can I buy now? And, and there wasn't anything. So Natchbull still uses the same fibres that we use for the deck and it's still made by the same people. And, you know, and the knitwear's made in England and it's all beautiful recycled cashmeres and amazing fibers and it's instead of taking the sizing the industry use we thought hey we fitted 2,000 women here more than 2,000 why don't we do what we think the sizing is let's look at the 500 women that have been a size 14 and look at that bust that chest measurement that waist measurement what does that look like and so that has been infused into the whole collection of we think this is what the modern woman looks like and, and how this will fit. And it's just been huge success. It's been lovely. And little bespoke detailing has been infused throughout and it still holds the essence of the deck, but it very much sits on its own. That was Daisy Natchbull, the founder of The Deck. You can learn more about the brand and the story by heading to thedecklondon.com. You're listening to The Entrepreneurs. Paul Walker is the co-founder of Walker Slater, a brand renowned for its dedication to traditional craftsmanship and its timeless tweed and woolen garments, all designed in-house. Where did his journey start? Not in the Highlands, but at a bar in alpine ski destination Maribel. That's where Paul and his friends at what would one day become White Staff and Fat Face discussed the future of quality winter wear. Whilst Paul and his co-founder Francis began their venture in the French Alps, they soon moved operations to the Scottish Highlands to be more involved in garment production. Paul stopped by Midori House to talk about their made-to-measure tailoring service, exciting collaborations and expanding into new markets. Paul began by telling me about the evolution of the brand. To begin with, we were a wholesale brand, so we were taking our designs and showing them to other stores and then selling through those stores. That model itself was a little bit flawed. I mean, we've seen how that's developed. It became obvious that we needed to do something different when we built up a number of pieces in stock that we then had no way of really shifting. So the best way to shift it was to open a store. And as such, we became much more involved with retail. However, the direction of travel changed for me significantly when being in the Highlands, we were approached by many people to start making tweed garments, especially for the estates and it was like the sort of functional clothing of that environment. Tweed was a really technical fabric. It was called thornproof. It was designed for crawling about and not getting stuck with thorns and keeping the water out, keeping you warm. And at the same time, it was breathable. So it was a realization that we could really do something with this, with this resource that was close to us. Uh, well, let's talk a bit more about that because I'm interested, obviously, at Monocle, we love bricks and mortar. We love the idea of a shop where you can enjoy the tactility of garments or any products. Um, so that kind of makes sense to us intuitively. But I'm interested in culturally that shift. Once you then had that base in Edinburgh, is that right? It is, yeah, um, in the old town. So does just the presence of that store mean that 
people sort of reflect and look at the brand differently. It brings this a notion of a different kind of heritage story. Is that yeah, something? Very that, much. You, know? you listen to the people that come through the door as well. You develop relationships, and and the fun and the sparks come from the interaction. And tell me if we sort of come more up to date because I know now it's a bit like you visit Old Reiki and you see the castle and you kind of head to Walker Slater. It's a little bit of a, a stop on the itinerary, isn't it, for, for international travellers, for example? I hope so. I hope so. I think we've been very fortunate in the sense that we've, we're located in a place that people want to visit. I think the stores have organically grown in that those stores are fairly small, but we had the opportunity to take on the one next door and then the one next door and then expand into them by creating something that, that wasn't there before. And, and that's really helped. So we've been able to start to have our countryside, our country part, our contemporary, and then the more casual. We've been able to separate out the collections more. Tell me a bit about collaboration, because obviously so many great businesses are powered necessarily by collaboration internally, externally. And you've already alluded to actually, if you go back to the beginning of the story, the idea that some of the biggest states might approach you, for example. Really interesting. I think there's a real obvious sort of thread to butcher mm. a, a garment analogy that runs through a lot of these partnerships. They seem intuitive. They seem an easy fit. Another one. How do those collaborations uh, come about? And apologies for my terrible puns. No, I mean, for us, it started with Ryder Cup. You know, Ryder Cup was held at Glen Eagles and we were approached along with Harris Tweed to design Tweed and a collection to work with that. And that was where it really started off. And that collaboration was strong. It had a big presence on the world stage. You know, Ryder Cup was a, a big event coming to Scotland. It then moved to us again into sporting areas. So then with the national football team, the Scottish football team, and also the Scottish rugby team. So, you know, that sporting side has been very strong for us. Tell me a little bit about, we mentioned this idea of, you know, direction of, of travel. What, what does that look like? How do you and your colleagues plan for the future? You're clearly hugely busy. It's in demand. I mentioned this idea, you know, it's so popular. Yeah. Well, globally, what about global expansion? Tell me a bit about what that could look like. Well, it's lovely wholesaling back into Europe now and wholesaling in a different way in the sense that, you know, we've been doing pity now for a number of years. We have regular clients that come from all over Europe. We don't wholesale in the UK. And I think that's done, you know, that's because we have the stores in London. We have the store Glasgow, Edinburgh. But uh, for Europe, it's great to be back out there and also the States. We did a little bit in Japan. We had a bit of a joint venture in Japan, but it's not an area yet that we've really explored fully. That's interesting. Yet. Yeah, I think, you know... Because there's a fascination, isn't there, with with heritage brands, whether it's in food and beverage or hospitality or in in garment making. Yeah, and I think heritage, it comes into the styling, but it also comes into the type of fabrics that you're using. I think Japan have been very lucky. Well, they've had this service from Scottish Tweed, and they've actually seen Scottish Tweed as we have quite early days. So they have their own exposure to it. For us, it's the take on how we do the tailoring, and also the way that the shapes move into a more sort of contemporary and often country look. Talk to me a little bit about supply chains, because I guess every business, wherever they were based, had challenges from 2020, well, still to the present day, and we've got Brexit and all the rest of it. How tricky has that been? Or actually, has Walker Slater been able to navigate that a bit better because the roots are a little deeper? There is a, a, a hyper-locality. You look pained. It's Paul. one of our biggest problems. You know, actually keeping up with the supply has been very difficult. We have many gaps in our lines, but we do have quite a big collection. So, you know, many people have said, oh, just focus on four or five things and just really make those work. And I'm, I'm like, I just think it would be so boring. <laughs> I just, you know, we, we really have tried to keep the lines quite, wide but the depth of it has been hard and that is because the lead times have gone up so much we make mm. in europe 
we found that a lot of our bigger competitors have pulled back from China and basically moved production back into Europe, and therefore the capacity within what we've been able to have made has been less. But we're getting there. Really, we are. You know, I was in Portugal just two weeks ago, and I'm really seeing big differences. We've got great partners out there, Italy also. It's starting to... I think it's. I think we're there, but <laughs> don't hold me to What's it. What's the thing? It's, it may not be the beginning of the end, but it's the end of the beginning or whatever. Yeah, the, the beginning of the is. beginning. Um, tell me, because that intrigues me, this idea about retaining a certain sort of, what's the word, dynamism in terms mm. of collections and expanding. Because I can see there is a pressure, financial, logistical, to keep things simple, as you say. How do you fire that interest in staying curious, being dynamic, continuing to expand your horizons? On a personal level, Paul, is it about... Well, you must be happy that you, it's now much easier to get back out into the world. Meeting people like you, Tom. I mean, it's so coming out. doing things. Do you, do you sometimes have to tear yourself away from the mundane day-to-day detail, the sort of quotidian challenges, and go out into the world and find those uh, moments? Absolutely, you very much do. And I think you also want to do it cross-sector. I think for us, you know, whiskey is now our sort of, you know, we're doing a lot now with the whiskey industry, and that that's fascinating. Different types of people, lovely people, and you learn a lot. You really do. Things that are produced close to us, some of those are, Absolutely fantastic. Well, just on that point then, let's talk about sort of Scottishness as against Britishness, as against Europeanness. Mm. How important are those labels? I mean, this is a definitively made in Scotland. Well, it's, as you said, you have partners in other in other European locations, but it feels like a Scottish heritage brand. But is that the most important part of its identity? Does it matter? No, Should we look in I a mean, more borderless way? We are a British way? brand. I'm very pleased to be in London. That's the whole point. We're very much a British brand. Scottishness is massively important because the heritage is Scottish. But the tailoring and some of the expertise of that is very English. So, you know, it it is a hybrid. We are able to draw, I think, from the strengths of Scotland whilst also recognising that we're very much involved with Britain. Yeah, I think you're something of an exemplar as a brand of that value, which is slightly more blind to how literally the made in, but it can be a bit restrictive. It doesn't matter that much, does it, really? We're, We're all people of the world, are we not? Absolutely. I think it's very important, though, to know where your things are being made. I've visited every maker, every fabric maker, every garment maker that we've ever worked with. And and I'm confident of the qualities and the values that they have and that they align with ours. Well, there's an interesting question. How much in the journey of the business have you noticed how acutely aware are you of the fact that your customers are also that rigorous now about provenance. You were maybe an outlier to be that interested in the sort of hyper-locality at the start. It feels now like people, they don't just want to know, they expect to know. And also maybe they're happy to pay a premium as a consequence. Do you think we're getting towards the point where that becomes a, a market standard? I think it's got very granular. People really want to go down the supply chain and understand what's going on. You know, I mean, for instance, we use natural fibres. We really try and shy away from oil-based fibres. That's one part of it. But then there's the way that the labour is. Who's making this? Are they getting paid a fair amount? Is it done in, in, in circumstances that you would be pleased to see your people involved with and for me that's extremely important and I I, I do understand why a customer would would want to know that and I'm really happy that they do because I think the days of just consuming things based on price and your own circumstances that seems very selfish I think that we have to look beyond that I've always felt that tweed is for everyone it can be lightweight heavyweight it can be breathable it can be it doesn't have to be just tailoring it doesn't have to be about country estates and shooting it can be very urban that was paul walker the co-founder of walker slater and you can find out more about their story by heading to walkerslater.com 
That's all for this episode of The Entrepreneurs. We'll be back at the same time next week. Do look out for Eureka, available every Friday. The programme was produced by Laura Kramer, with mixing and editing by Jack Dewars. You can listen again and find out more about the show at monocle.com or follow us and catch up with the archive via your preferred podcast platform. To contact the team, write to Laura. She's on lrk at monocle.com. I'm Tom Edwards. Goodbye and thanks for listening to The Entrepreneurs. The Entrepreneurs.